Hi, and welcome to another episode of the ULI Toronto Electric Cities podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Warson. One of the great benefits of living and working in the Toronto region is the opportunity to access its incredibly diverse arts and culture scene. Countless festivals throughout the year, cutting-edge exhibitions, endless music and sporting events, the list goes on and on. And it's one of the core reasons why Toronto continues to thrive as a global city. But now, with the necessity to avoid crowds and indoor gatherings of any kind due to the COVID-19 pandemic, arts and culture in this city has been hit particularly hard. According to the Conference Board of Canada, Toronto's economic output of the arts and entertainment sector, which includes sports, has dropped 23% and is not expected to return to pre-pandemic levels until at least 2022. In the meantime, thousands employed in the arts and culture sector are either out of work or have seen their incomes significantly decline. Yet despite these hardships, the arts and culture industry has demonstrated an amazing ability to quickly adapt and deliver programs that are innovative and inspiring, and in some cases have even broadened its appeal to larger audiences. Joining me today to talk about the impacts of the pandemic on Toronto's arts and culture sector is Celia Smith, the newly appointed CEO for Illuminato Festival Toronto, one of the city's best-known arts and culture festivals. So Celia, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Jeremy. Nice to be here. Before we get into talking about Luminato, I'm wondering if you can pick up from uh, what I've mentioned in my intro and talk a little bit more about the reasons why Toronto's arts and, arts and culture sector is so important to the city and its citizens. Well, the arts and culture uh, sector in Toronto you know, is a huge uh, a huge reason of why the city is as vibrant as it, as it is. Um, not only is it as a major employer of you know artists, artisans, uh, production people, uh, distributors, marketing people, you name it. Um, they tell me across the country there are more people employed in the arts and culture sector than there are in oil and gas and all the resource sectors combined, and no different here in Toronto. Um, so, so just. You know, economically super important, and as a tourist generator, and you know, and all of that. But I think uh, even more importantly, as a point of civic pride, as a way for the community to speak to each other, as a way for us to recognize each other and share our stories and our experiences. As a city that's this diverse, uh, we have to use our stories uh, to introduce ourselves to each other and and connect to each other. So it's an essential piece of why this is a beautiful city to live in. And and do you find, it, I mean, it, it's grown over the years, and, and how has the arts and culture scene evolved Is it over the years uh, as Toronto has grown? Well, it's exploded. There are, you know, the, the major organizations, the, you know, the, the institutions uh, have gone through renaissance in the last, say, a couple of decades, and, you know, the, the infrastructure is amazing. But way beyond that, the number of uh, grassroots organizations, community-based arts organizations, uh, professional arts organizations representing a wide variety of diverse communities and diverse art forms has just exploded. 
So thousands and thousands of, um, of entities, and then beyond that, uh, working artists in all types of, of, uh, of art forms. And is that unique to Toronto, or is it symptomatic of any large growing metropolis? Uh, I think what you've got that's different here is the wide spread of diversity of who's attracted to this city, who is moving here every year, who live, who makes this area, I mean, the Toronto area, their home, that you get that level of diversity and then you lay the creativity on top of that. And I, I would venture to say that that is quite a unique situation that we've got going here in Toronto. Well, what about now COVID? Uh, COVID has hit. I mentioned in the intro, it, it's it's had a pretty a pretty significant impact right across the board for everyone. Um, give me your perspective on on how it has hit the industry. Well, the uh, arts and culture industry, like hospitality and uh, other entertainment uh, parts of of uh, the sector, were the first to close, and many say will be the last to open. So. Uh, first to close, a lot of um, a lot of self-employed individuals, you know, wide variety of people with no uh, sick uh, sick day support or benefit plan or larger sort of uh, sort of infrastructure behind them. So as a sector, a lot of um, precarious employment. So that all shut down literally overnight at the end of March last year, and. You know, we thought through the course of the year that it would come back maybe at the end of the summer, okay, maybe in the new year, not likely, maybe by the summer, probably not. So that, you know, that's the one thing, just, just literally um, uh, not allowed to, to open up again and do most of the activity that would generate employment and, and, um, and work. And then there's the other sort of looming issue about social confidence, that even if we were allowed to gather again, um, will we? Hmm. So kind of a the two prongs to the problem. Do you want to expand on that that notion, the social confidence? Is that is that the term you use? Mm-hmm. Well, it's something that I think. I mean, it's both a challenge that we're going to face, and I also think that the arts and culture community offers the solution to that. Because it's as simple as we will all have gotten very used to not going out, and we will all be suspicious and and careful about what we do. Uh, so how do we build the confidence for all when it's safe you know uh, confidence for us to resume and and get back to some of the activity as some of the activity that's involved in being in an urban center so how do we build that social confidence so that people go back to the main streets and start shopping in those shops again or taking public transit again or going back into the towers downtown i mean i'm talking about post-vaccine post-majority and, and that's what i was thinking yeah yeah how, how do we actually i mean maybe one thing for, the, for everyone to say you can do it Another thing for us actually to, to go back to behaviors that will have been at that point 12 to 18 months on hiatus. And I think arts and culture are one of the huge keys to this. And that, you know, who can tell? But one would think that after this time of constraint, we're going to be bursting at the seams to get back out, experience live activities together, be back out in large crowds be joining our, our, our community members again to experience things um, and get a thrill from that because that has, that has been thwarted for so long. So so how can we work with the business community, the BIAs, uh, you know, um, local tourism, not yet, you know, further tourism, and, and use what we've got in the arts and culture community to, uh, to bring people back out and build that confidence 
so, you know, that's part of when they talk about the recovery, whenever we're at that stage, how are we ready and primed um, to do that? Because I think that we will need it. Uh, we will need it in order to, to really get us back on track. It's interesting you mentioned getting back, uh, and that's from the audience's perspective, but I'm also curious about inspiring, um, you know, everything that we've gone through, as you just mentioned, with COVID and the impact it's had on on those who are working in the industry, particularly those who are in a little bit more precarious uh, employment situations. You know, what, what does this say to uh, inspire and attract um, young and emerging talent who want to make a career in the field? Are they going to start thinking differently about, about getting into the industry? It's very tough. It's very tough. I mean, I can't say that the most vulnerable are necessary, necessarily the, mo- the emerging artists are the youngest, though they are absolutely um, really badly hit by this. But I would say it's, it's kind of universal. I mean, artists in mid-career are also in a precarious situation. So it just sort of exposes that, um, you know, this, this whole pandemic. So I think, you know, this will, uh, there, again, there's sort of two sides to this. This is a constraint that will dampen and, and will push a lot of people out of, of the creative industries and, and the arts and culture sector. Where they go to is another question, um, but it will, it will definitely discourage a lot of activity. On the other hand, at the same time that this is happening, you get stories of incredible creativity and remarkable flourishing in the midst of constraint because you know there's also certainly a Lots of stories you can tell about incredible things that are created when things are at their darkest. So there will be stories coming out of this time and perspectives and art and work, film and uh, visual art and theater and all kinds of things coming out of this activity, this time period, um, which will be very powerful. So, but to do that, while people are shut down with no income and no prospect of, of producing anything for the foreseeable future, that's that's really the, the paradox that we're facing. And at the same time, you want the creative people in our midst to help us through this, to help us find the light, to inspire us, to, to bring us some joy, to distract us, to, you know, uh, and also at the same time to put the big issues on the table. Because as we sit here in, in isolation, the, the number of enormous large societal issues that are facing us that we need to address seems to be increasing every day, our awareness of them, right? So arts can do that. Arts and culture can do that. So so we're relying on creative people to not only help us find our way through this darkness to the light and remind us that we're going to get there, but also to help us unpack some of the things that just aren't working and help us both find the energy and the inspiration to deal with it. So that's a big ask. That's a big ask of a sector and of a cohort that is not supported financially and um, and is, is going to bear bear a big cost during during this time. Very interesting. I, it's probably a good segue then in, into having you explain a little bit more about what Luminato Festival is is all about and um, what it entails, how long it's been around, and and certainly interested to hear how it has been impacted by COVID nineteen. Yeah, so Illuminato is a is a um, 
Performing and Visual Arts Festival that happens usually every June in the city of Toronto. Uh, this will be the 15th year uh, that it's been happening, and it, it usually attracts hundreds of thousands of participants from across the region and further beyond, producing work, uh, international work that comes here, and international artists, and as well as showcasing uh, local artists, Canadian artists, and, and producing work um, from, from this region and from all across the country. And, um, and it was originally founded uh, as an economic generator and, and recovery method after SARS. Oh, hit interesting. Toronto um, about 17 years ago. Um, so, uh, so it was founded at the idea that this could be an economic generator, tourism gener generator, a pride generator, uh, you know, all of those things for the larger, broader community. So many events are free, they're outside, they're engaging with a wide variety of people, you know, along with some, some smaller events. And more or less, that's what's happened over the last 15 years. But as we headed into COVID, and we were planning a festival last June, of course, we had to cancel it, and we switched to a completely online version last June. And we had about five weeks to pull it off. So, you know, that was a, that was a stretch. We were shifting into a method that we didn't really understand. And anyway, we did it, gave it to the world. And what was interesting is that about 40% of the people that participated were actually international audiences. Oh. So that was unusual and surprising to us. Uh, it was like, wow, okay. On the one hand, we didn't get to do what we wanted to do, uh, you know, and, and switching to digital has, has its benefits, but it also is not the same as a live experience. But we suddenly were talking to people that we hadn't really thought that we were talking to before. So it kind of opened our eyes to that. Switch to where we are now. We do programming through the year, but we still move towards sort of a, a peak experience in June. And so we've been planning all year a, a, a festival program in June that is slightly different for this year. It's all outside. It's all free. It's all over the city region, not just in the downtown, but all over the city region. And it features all local artists uh, because we, we're not in a position to bring people in internationally because even as late as last summer, we knew that would be a challenge for this year. Of course, now it's an impossibility, but um, with the idea that we, we touch as many people as possible, that we inspire as many people, that we engage with as many people, that that we're um, bringing joy and inspiration and energy, but also that we're addressing some of the major issues of our day, whether they're climate change or anti-black racism or homelessness or um, inequity or, or, or the recovery from COVID or the, you know, wide variety of issues that are facing urban centers around the world. Because, uh, and that in addition to that, we're also talking about beauty and aesthetic and joy and inspiration and distraction because that's what art, as well as being political, can be inspirational. Um, and ultimately, what we'd like is we'd like the whole world to see this big bright light coming up from the Toronto region so that in the space station they can see this big bright light coming from this region. And they say, like, what the heck is going on in Toronto? Why are they... So positive, positive, where do they get their energy from? How are they able to address these large urban issues that we're facing all over the world? Why are they getting on with trying to figure them out? Where do they get their energy from? And we would like to be part of that. And we think arts and culture, uh, of which we are part, um, arts and culture can help us find that energy. And that 
sort of set the table that we can all gather around to try to, to deal with how we live with each other. So, so that's, and this is not a one year, this is not a one year goal. So here we are in COVID and we still feel like that's an essential thing. I mean, look what happened yesterday in the States. God knows what's going to happen tomorrow. We have got to shine some light on things. We've got to inspire, bring joy, bring energy. So we don't all just put our heads in the sand. And then we've, we've got to put these issues on the table and, and collectively say, this isn't good enough. The systems have been failing many of us. This is not the way we want to live. How are we collectively going to fix this? So that's the role. So that's Luminato along with everybody else in the arts and culture sector um, has the ability to, to, to help push us towards that. And I think that Toronto is uniquely placed for some of the reasons I said before, but uniquely placed not, not because we're smarter than everyone else or because we're so further ahead, but because we have a level of, of uh, tolerance and, and peace and respect for each other that I think we could probably get on with some of that. So, yeah, and you're so saying that's this. Where we're going. Well, and you're saying this. Uh, this is a you know a podcast recording. We're recording on January seventh, and yesterday was you know um, the the day that uh, uh, thousands of Trump supporters um, stormed the the national capital, and and so that's what you're referring to. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. You're um, you mentioned that forty percent of your audience uh, came from abroad. That that it does sound like you've already. Um, sparked interest from abroad. Uh, it doesn't have to necessarily uh, be, you know, astronauts looking down <laughs> uh, from from above. But it, that that's quite amazing. I I want. I'm curious though. Um, now you you recently joined um, Luminato in, in last year. Is that that's correct? That's right. Yep. So what it has? I'm just curious whether when when you joined um, Luminato. Um, did COVID, I guess the impacts of COVID and the way that you're kind of reframing how Luminato Festival is shaping up, um, was it kind of a combination of your ideas for Luminato and the impacts? Um, how did that, I'm just wondering how that played out. Well, I think it's all it's all tied up together. The COVID arrived in March. Um, the festival was canceled a few weeks later. The festival was supposed to happen in June and the group on the ground were moving towards, you know, switching to, to doing a, a virtual festival for the for June of 2020. And I, I took uh, the role as of June the 1st, four days, um, four days after George Floyd was murdered. Um, and 11 days before we did our virtual festival for the world. So I can't claim credit for a lot of things that were happening, both externally in the world, obviously, and then, and then internally at Luminato, but sort of a confluence of all of that and, and the, the pretty quick realization that we weren't going back to anything resembling normal anytime soon. So how do you remain, you know, running a, a not-for-profit arts organization in the middle of COVID, how do you remain relevant, solvent, sustainable, and ready to have, uh, ready to go and, and offer the essential service that you should be offering whenever everyone is ready to receive it. How do you do that? So, so the idea that we would be all free, all outside, all over the city, all local talent, shop local, that seemed pretty obvious back in late last June. That seemed pretty obvious that that's where we would have to go even a year, you know, for the year later. Um, and, and, you know, this is this year. 
not saying that that's what it would be like every year, but I think this year is a test year. We, you know, who doesn't get to experiment this year? Who, who on earth would tell us that you don't get to do that? That's not what you do. We're all doing stuff we've never done before. So why not take this, take this, this interregnum period and test a bunch of stuff, you know, and, and, and deliver things differently and speak differently and be more ambitious in, in some areas than you might otherwise have been. I mean, the whole sector has embraced the digital uh, transmission of its work in a way that, you know, we talked about it for years, but very few of us had actually done it. Um, and now within weeks, people were, you know, broadcasting their own work and, and, and transforming their physical spaces into spaces that could be used during COVID and, and just, you know, artists all over the place showing all kinds of innovation. Um, so, you know, I think that I think that's what creative people do. We figure out how we adapt. Uh, but as running someone who's running an organization, you adapt, but you also have to be looking at the long game. Like we're going to adapt, and what are we going to look like by the time we get out of this? And will there be strength left to do what it is that the community needs us to do? Do you have Do you have a, a clear idea what that what you will look like in the years to come? Uh, yeah, I you know I do. You know, we do, we do. It's um, we've received really tremendous support from uh, our philanthropic community and and funders and supporters and audiences and and you know, there's no doubt that you know, our concept within the sector of the value of arts and culture that that is felt by many, many, many people. Um, and then you know, sort of the personal need for it, and then also uh, there's no doubt. That, um, that the economy and, and the business sector needs this kind of attraction. Um, so, so there's no, no worry about that. I think the, the worry is um, how long does COVID go on? And back to the social confidence piece, you know, will our behavior be dramatically different or are we going to have the roaring 20s? You know, is anything we put out there, is it going to be like consumed like crazy because we'll have been under such constraint for so many months. We'll be like, give, bring it on. Or are we going to be like, actually, I don't go out anymore. I don't, I don't, you know, I think the former is what's going to happen. I think know, so. As, as we do. But, you know, that's, that's a concern. But, and I think at this time, let's use this time, as I say, to test and, and try new things. I mean, we're talking about, than Luminato about approaching a wide variety of, of audiences geographically and culturally and, and you know, all kinds of other age-wise, demographically, that we just haven't been talking to. So why wouldn't we take this time to figure out how to do that and how to be meaningful to those people who, for whom we have not been a part of their life? But why not do that now? Um, so, uh, and not think about going back to what we lost but going forward to something that's better. I want to um, shift gears a little bit and um, uh, uh, I guess pick up from the, the, that theme that you talked about, about getting support. Um, and, and in this case, it's uh, how um, city building or how city builders, uh, developers, even the city itself is able to uh, assist and support in in delivering uh, the arts. I understand that prior to joining Luminato, you were the chief operating officer for a private developer in Toronto, and, and prior to that, you were the president for many years at Artscape, which is a not-for-profit organization. 
um, which, uh, according to the website, and I quote, specializes in creative placemaking, uh, which leverages arts and culture as a catalyst for community and urban development. I, I wanted to ask if you can um, briefly describe your experience as a city builder and, and the value of integrating support for the arts to enhance community building and, and new developments. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's right. For about the past 15 years, I've been literally building the city, uh, physically building the city, and now I'm, I'm building it um, you know, metaphorically, I guess, um, ephemerally. Um, you know, when one builds buildings, you're building a legacy that will outlive all of us. You know, if you expect that buildings have a, you know, 40, 50, 60 plus year life, um, you're building the city of the future that we won't be here to see. So what kind of city are we building and for whom? And I think public realm is such a big, big, important piece to think about. And at Artscape, you know, we built many community hubs and we built affordable housing for artists and their families, both rental and and ownership. And then we built a lot of community hubs that had... um, atelier space for artists and arts organizations and community groups. And, and one of the most high profile ones was Daniel Spectrum in Regent Park. And when we were working on that with the Daniels Corp and with Toronto Community Housing and Artscape and with the local Regent Park community, we would talk about what we needed right now, what the community needed, what the new development would need, how do we knit the new and the old back together through arts and culture? How would we support the youth of the community and the elderly of the community? What could we do to bring the rest of the city to Regent Park, a place perhaps they hadn't been used to visiting? You know, how could we do to really knit that district into the rest of the heart of the city? And I I think we were able to do that through that Arts and Culture Center. But as important as all of that, how are we designing a space that was going to be helpful and useful 40 years from now? I mean, heaven knows what everyone is doing and what the rest of the city needs. How do you build today what will be useful in the future for resilience, for community building, for connections, for, um, you know, all of that stuff? Because we all know that isolation does not breed good things. It's the interconnection that that, that, uh, generates, you know, uh, again, social capital, resilience, opportunities as well as economic and and uh, other social good so so thinking about that and how one uses like really community place-based development what you know really rooting the development in the local area what does that local area need what is it missing what will be lost in the course of this development that could be supplemented or replaced and then what um how can we build in the future flexibility that we're going to need and see everything as being interconnected, not as being isolated. I get so frustrated when I see new developments that appear like they just landed here from the moon. They have nothing to do either aesthetically or programmatically or economically to do with everything else that's beside it. You know, um, it doesn't seem to make, make sense. So, um, and one of the things we were working on at Artscape was how to, uh, how to harness gentrification for, for in a way that didn't um, didn't accept sort of the neutralization of the of the things that made the area attractive in the first place, you know Queen West, Dundas West, 
Ossington, those areas that had been really populated by artists for so long and made it very trendy and then were bought up and developed and, and in some places, you know, really neutralized. So how do you actually retain space for creativity and artists and, and arts organizations in the midst of change? Because you can't stop change, nor should you. Change is, is organic and natural, but how do you do it in a way that you don't lose the, the very juice that made it a, an attractive place. So that was always sort of the Rubik's Cube we were working on at Artscape. Um, and then when I, when I worked for the private developer, we were looking at how do we incorporate uh, a lot of these same streams, but in a commercial format? How do we incorporate the need for, um, you know, affordability and, uh, and sustainability and public realm considerations in a completely commercial format and to make the project more valuable uh, rather than, you know, it's often seen if you put those things in, those are a cost, but actually to f figure out how they could actually be an investment that would trigger more value for the project rather than just take away. And do you find that um, there are more developers who are recognizing that? I mean, as they are all, they're all profit-driven and, um, you, you know, the added, the added element of trying to think about how to introduce um, elements of their development that are just beyond, say, a condo or retail or office, um, do, do, you, do you see that there are more developers are, are taking that up and doing it well? Uh, I think they are. I, I think they are. And some of them are doing this because of personal interest, whether they have a personal commitment to sustainability, for instance, or aesthetic or, or uh, you know, some uh, community-related issue. Some of them are doing it because that's what they want to do um, as their own um, ethic. Others are seeing that it's a distinguishing feature um, and a brand enhancer, which is really a great idea and very valid. Um, that consumers are interested in, in buildings that also have those other components to them um, and will want to you know, support that. And certainly that um, policymakers and um, approval bodies are interested in that. And so your project can proceed perhaps more, more swiftly and with fewer roadblocks if you're actually addressing the community issues that have been identified. Um, but I think overall, one of the frustrations is these become showcases, these become interventions or pilot projects. How do you systematize this? Part of it is policy. Um, and, and part of it is groundswell um, desire from the general uh, consumer public, you know, that, well, this is what we want. So, uh, to, you know, to, to really make an impact. I'm wondering if you can just give some examples. Uh, you, you mentioned the Daniel Spectrum, which is... Um... Uh, now I haven't been there, uh, but it is a it is a theater inside. Is that correct? It's a theater uh, community yeah, it's space. A, it's, a, it's a sixty thousand square foot uh, three story arts and culture center in the middle of the New Regent Park um, that was built uh, in a in a cooperative model between the developer Daniels and Toronto Community Housing, who's the landowner, Artscape as a not for profit. Uh, operator and the local community mm -hmm. as, as, a, as a really big constituent. And it's set up as a separate not-for-profit organization with certain tenets of what it will do. And it houses a number of, of really terrific locally-based not-for-profit organizations with education and arts and culture and social entrepreneurship as their kind of themes. 
And then there's a, a couple of uh, performance spaces in there. And so there are many events in the olden days. There were many events that happened there and fundraisers and performances and stuff. And it was on a, it was a social enterprise model. So it was, it was either free or very reasonably priced to local community groups and then became more closer to market pricing depending on, on who the user was. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, really a lovely model. And it was uh, observed around the world as I mean, Regent Park was certainly being observed around the world as, as a different way to, to develop um, affordable housing. But uh, Daniel Spreckman was also uh, as a, a sort of a, it was recognized early on as a key component, along with other social elements like the sports fields and the swimming, uh, the aquatic center and, and some of the commercial uh, retail uh, stuff in Regent Park. It was really essential in order to, to um, integrate the community. Well, I was going to, I guess I was going to ask, um, you know, when I think about developers and the arts, I often think about these um, more, more of a static response, which is the, you know, very often a, a public art, which is uh, required by, um, by the city if they're, if they're seeking uh, increase in density. Um, and they're very often, you know, sculptural and, and, and artistic placements. Um, but, you know, to go beyond that, like the example you just, you, you, you described of Daniel Spectrum, um, that, that would seem to be a little bit more of, um, pushing the envelope for, for developers, um, uh, on whole. W- would you agree with that? Well, it is currently, but if you look at things in a holistic way, I mean, it, that, that, you know, it was, it was a significant site that was being redeveloped and all kinds of public services needed to be provided. So it wasn't like it was a standalone building. There were, you know, obviously dozens, dozens and dozens of buildings and, and, and pieces to the development. There still is a new stage that's just been awarded recently, I think. So I think it was five stages altogether. It's a 25-year-plus project, the redevelopment of that site. So I think in, you know, in that case, you have to look at it as a, as a whole. Um, but I think even if you are just developing a single building, looking at the context of where it is, um, looking at, at the, uh, the housing stock of where it is. I mean, I personally think that affordable housing should be a component of every development, and that's a policy shift that would happen. And if it did happen, the industry would adjust, absolutely, in order to make that possible. Because the same, um, you know, if people are not able to live in the city, then uh, companies will not have employees uh, to work there and, and the nurses won't be able to show up at the hospital. And it's, it's pretty basic. It's pretty easy to understand that if we don't address some of these basic human needs as a community in an integrated way, in a holistic way that actually is at a volume, then we hollow out um, the city that we, that we value. And even, even if you don't care about that uh, altruistically, you should care about that economically because it will affect affect you know one's ability to do business so um so i think it is relevant and you know public art is terrific there's some beautiful public art there's also some public art that's really peculiar so i don't think that's that's the be all and end all i think affordable housing for obviously for artists and and their families but also for many other workers i think uh access to public space and community space access uh the, the idea of public realm the idea of beauty in our city and and uh, along with other obviously significant things like sustainability and and accessibility and transit and you know those those key things that make it a livable city. You think about the places we like to travel in the world, and why do we go there, and what do we do when we go there? It's almost you no know, other than 
the natural beauty places. The other are it's, it's creative beauty. We go to the great cities, and what do we do when we go there? We eat wonderful food. We go to incredible shows. We listen to beautiful music. We walk the lovely streets. We look at the vistas. You know, that's why don't we? Why don't we put the same priority on our own on our own city? Well, do you think now that we're into COVID and you know how all industries are responding and pivoting? Um, what are your thoughts on how the private sector or not-for-profits or governments are, are responding or how they should maybe um, amp up their game to ensure that arts and culture um, continues to thrive in Toronto? Mm-hmm. I think it's, I mean, it's interesting you said all those three sort of communities, the, the public sector, the private sector, and, and what I would call the community sector, the not-for-profit sector, and we generally see these in isolation. And I think that these are the sort of the three corners of the vortex. And we're all going down in the middle of the vortex. So we should figure out how we actually, each playing a strength from where we are, how we can actually address the big issues. And, you know, in, in arts and culture, for instance, I mean, as I say, you come at it from economically basic, you know, social, in, you know, uh, basic universal income or some other version of that, housing, community space, space for creativity, space for inspiration. I mean, how does that get provided either through a policy policy shift and or a response from the private sector, not because they want to do good exclusively, but because there's actually a, there's actually a, a self-interested reason to do that. And, and from the community sector, that we recognize the value that we're bringing to the table, that we're not supplicant asking for the leftover bits that we're actually offering the juice we're actually offering the lifeblood we're actually going to pull all of us through this and out of it you know we count on our educators we count on our medical providers and we count on our creative people to help us pull ourselves up and out and through something like this so so i see value in that uh that's not a leftover bit or an add-on that's an essential service and we need to see ourselves that way, and we need to provide, legitimately provide that service. Um, and, uh, and I think then we have a chance, not just of coming back, but actually, as I say, sort of springing forward. Where do we want to live? What do we want it to be like here? How, what would we like for, for our kids or somebody else's kids in the future? Well, what's, be what's, like been the, um, what's been the dialogue like so far uh, since the pandemic hit? It, under that theme that you're just mentioning. Well, do you mean within the arts sector? Or well, in terms of this, you know, you work, you know, the, the vortex and you're talking about all the different um, yeah. groups working together. Has there been dialogue? Is there promise? Is, well, can it be done? I, yeah. I'm a, well, I should have mentioned this at the beginning that I'm an optimist because the alternative, I don't know how to deal with the alternative. So it's too dark. So I am an optimist. I think that there has been a wake up call in corporate Canada about not just their responsibility to deal with some of the big issues of our time, whether it's anti-black racism or inaccessibility or inequity or whatever, not just that, that it's a wake up, but that, uh, that they need to get out, they need to get out ahead of this, uh, that, that for their own good, they're going to need to get out ahead of this and actually be lead, show leadership. And I've seen that from a number of, of senior corporate uh, corporations and corporate leaders. And, and I believe they're sincere. So, I think there's a there's a willingness, and certainly when we've been out talking to potential donors and sports supporters and partnership, this idea of um, 
of really pushing forward on all of on, on a larger agenda collectively seems to resonate like really resonate um so i think that's tremendous and i think what we've seen in the government in the public sector you know we were used to thinking them of them as as very slow moving and we've seen the speed at which they can move and change policy and implement stuff like with really within hours in some cases and we didn't know i don't imagine that those individuals knew that they could move that quickly and so I think that's a wake up as well. Like the status quo does not need to be the status quo if, if that's not what we want. And now we know that. Uh, so I think that's a powerful, powerful thing. And it's certainly among, the, you know, talking municipally, provincially, federally in arts and culture, there's a really strong recognition of the value of this sector, the value of this industry, both economically as an employer um, and then as an economic generator, but also as as a social capital generator that, you know, they've been very consistent at that and been very uh, quick to adjust any of the support that's coming out to ensure that the workers in this industry qualify. Some of them were excluded at the beginning because I don't think really understood how the industry was set up, but that was addressed. So, um, so that's, that's a telling thing as well. We usually have to go and, you know, Hey, don't forget about us. That wasn't the case. They were actually a couple steps ahead of ahead of us as a sector going, yeah, we need to actually include you in this. So it's not to say it's perfect. It's not perfect. There's an, of course, there's new problems around the corner. But um, I would also say that in this time, uh, I think many of, many of us have found doors are open that were closed before. People are more accessible. We've all sort of become uh, less formal about being able to talk to each other. So the hierarchies are not as, as strict in some cases as they have been before. And I think that just bodes well. I think that's, that's a really positive thing. You know, I, I want to end off, you know, uh, one of the, um, just on in the appreciation for the arts, um, my my wife is a, uh, a cellist, a professional cellist and teacher, and she's part of a string quartet and uh, we, we live in the West End, and, and we're fortunate to have a house with a front porch. So her, her and her quartet um, uh, performed for our neighbors and passersby one, one lovely summer uh, weekday evening. We even had a neighbor who is a professional opera singer uh, join in. And um, they performed for, um, as I said, neighbors and passersby, and they all you know sat um, two meters apart. And um, the thing that really struck me was just this, um, this just uh, real appreciation for music, from me and from everyone. Um, Maybe it was just an absence of it, but it seems that just by having the absence of the opportunity to to go to uh, concert halls or galleries and and appreciate the way we did, that it's something that we've we've lost, and and now we have um, maybe a newfound appreciation for it. Um, I you know what I guess for you, what what would you say the experience that this pandemic has created um, in, for the arts in general? I think that's a lovely story. I'm- I had a, a story from some of the people working at Kerner Hall. And for a few weeks in September, they did a couple of concerts and they were able to have 50 people in the audience. And then it was all shut down. And they said that the first one they did, so some of the staff were in the hall, the 50 audience members, 
the musicians were all on the stage, some of them behind plexiglass and, you know, all of that, super safe. Um, and the musicians started playing and every single person in the hall started crying because it was just so powerful, the sense of, I mean, the beauty of it, but also the sense of loss of what, what we haven't had. Um, and you forget, you get, oh, well, I'm okay, I can carry on, and you forget that the magnitude of the loss of that beauty. So that story was just really, really stuck with me. And um, anyway, it's, uh, it's a powerful thing. And we've all turned to, um, well, many people have turned to, um, to arts and culture during this time. And it's a lovely story about, about your wife and, and the front porch, and I've heard of other ones like that. And we want to get back to doing that. We want to get back to doing Illuminato's case on a grand scale, large scale. But I think that the personal is um, is just really powerful. Well, do you think so, that so this will inspire other local neighborhoods to to further, even BIAs, to further encourage um, more local, more locally driven um, arts festivals or music? Yeah. I mean, we have them in in certain in certain parts of the city, but. Um, and certainly well-established parts of the city, but maybe further in the peripheries and further exactly. out. Um, what are your exactly. thoughts on I mean, the experience you had, you know, uh, in your community, the equivalent, the parallel, the, you know, the different uh, experience, you know, that human experience of, of this, you know, the feeling of peace, serenity, of inspiration, of joy that you felt that beautiful summer night. Why doesn't everybody get to have that? you know, in whatever version works for them. Uh, the dance community has been really hit by this. Um, I mean, every, I'm not, it's, not a, it's not a competition, but the dance community in particular has been really hit because it's really hard to translate their work digitally um, under these constraints. And I think that, you know, when that comes back, the, the, the idea of movement coming back will be really powerful. And and on all versions, whether, you know, it's, it's the, the most well-trained professional or, or the most callous of us among us, the most, you know, amateur among us dancing in the streets, I think that'll be really a powerful time. Well, that's a that's a really nice, lasting image to end this uh, interview. And I, I really appreciate your optimism uh, for how the how the arts and culture scene is is uh, is poised to evolve and hopefully inspire um, um, not just I guess uh, our citizens in this city but f- from abroad and those looking <laughs> at our city as you said earlier. Yeah. Um, this yeah. has been really interesting and and I uh, wish you Luminato uh, and all of the uh, sister um, organizations all the best tremendous success uh, going forward. It's you know uncertain times but um, it sounds like the industry is, has pivoted, is ready to pivot, and, and ready to take on the challenge. Uh, and maybe it, it is an inspiring opportunity to um, to do something different and, and more bold and, and, and better than ever before. Well, thanks, Jeremy, and thanks for this opportunity to talk to you and to everybody who's listening. I really appreciate it. Good to talk about this stuff. Okay. Thanks so much. Take care.